all you beautiful body bastards and welcome back to body ballads where we look at many of the forgotten hilarious and often dirty old songs of the past along the way we'll explore all those things that make life just a bit more interesting there's trickery infidelity loving drinking fighting and while we dig into these songs we'll talk about all kinds of stuff archetypes, history, folklore, and share the way these songs connect with the present. A fair warning before we begin, this show does discuss adult themes and topics, including violence, sex, and my own foul mouth. And as always, make sure to check the show notes for links, including thebodyballads.com, where you can share your creations with me and see the show transcripts and additional links if you're curious to learn more. And with that said, let's get to today's episode. Hello, all you beautiful bastards. So, some of you may or may not notice that this episode was up, and then it disappeared for a bit. And that would be because my stupid ass did not realize there was a huge audio error where one of the older episodes had somehow gotten kind of pushed into this episode. But all that said, let's get to it. Episode 15, Taking Them Kids, or The Poor Act. 1601. Now, as I began writing this episode, I didn't even know which ballad we'd be looking at yet. But I did know what topic we'd be talking about because it's, of course, what I've been reading about. So today we'll look at what happens to the children of all those addicts and working poor in the 17th century. Now, a few days ago, I picked up a great article called Do Not Forget Me by Sandra Dahlberg at the University of Houston about a young boy named Richard Freythorne and his letters home after being put into a quote-unquote apprenticeship in Virginia after the Poor Law of 1601. So, what's the Poor Law of 1601? Well, it signifies a significant change of attitude towards the poor or downtrodden as a result of the shift from Catholicism. Now look, your girl was raised about as Protestant Baptist as it could get, so I'm not going to touch on the Protestant Catholicism. It's just going to come up during the time period. Now, like the mentally ill, something we'll get to sooner than later, the poor were considered at need for charity and kindness by Catholic viewpoints. Before Henry got horny and dissolved all the monasteries and Catholic churches, alms for the poor were a significant part of religious obligation. It was an act of mercy for those not as blessed by God as you had been. Catherine of Aragon, Henry, Henry VIII's first wife, was known for regularly walking amongst the poor and giving alms or charity. Charity, then as now, was a big part of a rich woman's life. However, during the Protestant Reformation, this view began to change. No longer were the poor victims of circumstance and birth, but instead they were people of weak will, unwilling to work hard enough to support themselves. They were sinful and weak and, as such, should be punished in order to save their immortal souls. Now, I'm sure the rhetoric of poor, the poor are poor because they aren't working hard enough sounds fucking familiar. If you think this changed or went away, no, it's, it's just still there. It's just never changed. Just, you know, for founding bedrock and all that. If you've under where if you've ever wondered where it comes from, this is it. 
Anyways, the Port Law of 6201 is super important for us because many street singers and ballad sellers were poor. The poorest of the poor. They often sold their songs to the poor, and that's why I'm so fascinated with these songs. These songs aren't the refined culture we learn about in school. Though, as we began to touch on last week, Shakespeare was far from refined. No, this was the earliest pop culture, and therefore tells us so much about the actual period of the peop or people of the period. There's a tongue twister for you. What did they worry about? What they got excited about? What they had to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? That's why we know so little changes in the day-to-day -day life of humans through space and time. We still all worry about unwanted pregnancies, false lovers, teaching others not to repeat our wrongs, etc. These broadsides and their prints would serve as decoration around the house, and all it took was one person able to read to teach the song to the rest. You cannot separate the ballad tradition from the working poor, and you cannot separate the poor from the poor law. So what did this law do exactly? Well, at first glance, it sounds great. It charged each parish with instituting its own kind of welfare program. Like welfare today, it was done so by instituting taxes that were used to help those unable to work due to age or disability. Pretty much identical to the plan that brought us the U.S. income tax, social security, disability, and welfare. I say pretty much identical, but that's in terms of welfare. There's a whole bunch more in the two laws that are very different. Anyway, that's not what we're here for. All sounds pretty advanced and liberal for the 17th century, but as with all things political, it eventually turned a bit dark. Anyone who was able to work physically but didn't, or was a quote-unquote vagrant, as many of our ballad sellers and street singers were, would be either fined or jailed. But considering that most were too poor to pay any kind of fine, they were just thrown to jail. Now, there's a whole episode eventually on the condition of these jails and the fate of those who entered, but let's just say that if you were lucky enough to get them out of there alive, it's likely because you'd been shipped to the colonies as convict labor. Again, something we'll spend an entire episode on later. The saddest, and what we'll look at today, is that the parents unable to care for their children would have them their children either taken by the parish who would often sell them into apprenticeships, including ones in the new colony of Virginia. Or, if they were desperate enough, they would sell their own children into apprenticeships. And this is what, well, sorry, let me backtrack. Clarity. The church <laughs> sold Richard into his apprenticeship. Uh, and so, who by all accounts wasn't even the poorest of the poor. Just his family had hit a bit of a bad spot. He had family that was Oxford-educated and could read and write himself. This was not a child whose parents had abandoned him in the street. These were parents facing difficulties due to the bad economics of an exploding population and not enough work, especially in London itself. Not to mention all the varying blowouts of plague and sweating sickness. So I'm going to begin by reading one of the letters Richard wrote, and that's the one to his parents. Now, the one that was written to the church leaders argues the law, even if in a rather juvenile high school essay kind of way. The boy was around 12 years old. 
I'll be honest though, I wish I could get my own students to use textual evidence the way this 12-year-old does. In fact, I may use his letter as a future example of if a 12-year-old in the early 1600s can write this well, you can too. Anyways, the letter to his parents is much more emotional and covers far more of the truth of the situation that was experienced by children sold into such apprenticeships, either by the church itself or by desperate parents. So all that said, let's waste no more time and look at what Richard himself had to say about what he was dealing with. Keep in mind that Richard is only about 12 and has been in Virginia for only about three months as he writes this. Loving and kind father and mother, my most humble duty remembered to you, hoping in God of your good health, as I myself am in the making hereof. This is to let you understand that I, your child, am in most heavy case by reason of the country, which is such that it causeth much sickness, such as the scurvy of the, and the bloody flux and diverse other diseases, which maketh the body very poor and weak. And when we are sick, there is nothing to comfort us. For since I came off the ship, I never ate anything but peas and loblolly, or water gruel. As for deer or venison, I never saw any since I came into this land. There is indeed some fowl, but we are not allowed to go and get it, but must work hard, both early and late, for a mess of water gruel and a mouthful of bread and beef. A mouthful of bread for a penny loaf must serve four men, which is most pitiful. You would be grieved if you did know as much as I do when people cry out and day and night. Oh, that they were in England without their limbs and would not care to lose any limb to be in England again. Yea, though they beg from door to door. For we live in fear of the enemy every hour, yet we have had a combat with them. And we took two alive and made our slaves of them. But it was by policy, for we are in great danger, for our plantation is very weak by reason of the death and sickness of our company. For we came but twenty for the merchants, and they are half dead just, and we look every hour when two more should go. Yet there came some four other men yet to live with us, of which there is but one alive, and our lieutenant is dead, and also his father and his brother. And there was some five or six of the last year's twenty, of which there is but three left, so that we are fain to get another man to plant with us. And yet we are but thirty-two to fight against three thousand if they should come. And the nighest help that we have is ten mile of us. And when the rose overcame this place the last time, they slew eighty persons. How then shall we do, for we lie even in their teeth? They may easily take us, but for the fact that God is merciful and can save us with as few as well as with many, as he showed to Gilead. And like Gilead's soldiers, if they lapped water, we drink water which is but weak. And I have nothing to comfort me, nor is there nothing to be gotten here but sickness and death, except in the event that one had money to lay out in some things for profit. But I have nothing at all. No, not a shirt to my back, but two rags, nor clothes, but one poor suit. Nor but one pair of shoes, but one pair of stockings, one cap, and two bands. My cloak is stolen by one of my fellows, and to his dying hour he would not tell me what he did with it. 
But some of my fellows saw him have butter and beef out of a ship, which my cloak, I doubt not, paid for. So that I have not a penny nor a penny worth to help me to either lit, to either spice or sugar or strong waters, without the which one cannot live here. For as strong beer in England doth fatten and strengthen them, so water here doth wash and weaken these here, and only keeps their life and soul together. But I am not half of a quarter so strong as I was in England, and all is for want of victuals. For I do protest unto you that I have eaten more in one day at home than I have been allowed here for a week. You have given me more than my day's allowance to a beggar at the door, and if Mr. Jackson had not relieved me, I should be in poor case. But he, like a father, and she, like a loving mother, doth still help me. For when we go to Jamestown, that is ten miles of us, there lie all ships that come to land, and there they must deliver their goods. And we went, when we went up to town, as it may be, on Monday at noon, and come there by night, then load the next day by noon, and go home in the afternoon, and unload, and then away again in the night, and be up about midnight, then if it rained or blowed never so hard, we must lie in the boat on the water and have nothing but a little bread. For when we go into the boat, we have a loaf allowed to two men, and it is all we would get if we stayed there two days, which is hard. And we must lie all that while in the boat. But that goodman Jackson pitied me and made me a cabin to lie in, some lion always when I could come up. And he would give me some poor jacks and fish to take home with me, which comforted me more than peas or water gruel. Oh, they are very godly folks and love me very well and will do anything for me. And he much marveled that you would send me a servant to the company. He saith I had been better knocked on the head, and indeed so I find it now to my great grief and misery, and I saith that if you love me you will redeem me suddenly, for which I do entreat and beg. If you cannot get merchants to redeem me for some little money, then for God's sake get a gathering or entreat some good folks to lay out some sum of money in meal and cheese and butter and beef. Any eating meat will yield great profit. Oil and vinegar is very good, but, Father, there is great loss in leaking. But for God's sake, send beef and cheese and butter, or the more of one sort and none of the other. But if you send cheese, it must be very old cheese, and at the cheesemongers you may buy very food cheese for two pence farthing or half penny that will be liked very well. But if you send cheese, you must have care of how you pack it in barrels, and you must put cooper's chips between every cheese, or else the heat of the hold will rot them. And look whatsoever you send me, be and never so much look whatever I make of it, I will deal truly with you. I will send it over and beg the prophet to redeem me, and if I die before it come, I have entreated Goodman Jacksman, Jackson to send you the, the worth of it, who hath promised he will. If you send, you must direct your letters to Goodman Jackson at Jamestown, a gunsmith. You must set down his freight, because there may be more of his name there. Good Father, do not forget me, but have mercy and pity on my miserable case. I know if you did but see me, you would weep to see me, for I have but one suit, but though it is a strange one, it is very well guarded. Wherefore, for God's sake, pity me. I pray you to remember my love to all my friends and kindred. I hope all my brothers and sisters are in good health, as, and as for my part, I have set down my resolution that certainly will be, 
That is, that the answer of this letter will be life or death to me. Therefore, good father, send to me as soon as you can, and if you send me anything, let this be the mark. Richard Freythorne. Now, I know we all deeply hope that Richard made it, but sadly he died the following year of one of those diverse diseases. We don't have any record of any kind of response to his letters, and it's um, possible that his parents had died of plague. Perhaps you see why I decided to cover this. How could I not? The idea of a 12-year-old boy taken from home, sent over to what was at that time basically an alien world, only for him to die of neglect? Fuck that. To give an idea of how bad it was at the time of the letter, it is estimated that a total of 8,500 poor children were sent to Virginia in that way. Of that, only about 1,250 lasted more than a couple of years. A couple of years. In a couple of years, you went from 8,500 kids to 1,250 from a mix of, yes, disease, but starvation and conditions were wretched. Let's not forget that they ended up eating people at Jamestown at one point when they first tried getting it started. Now, during the time, everyone was called servants. No matter if they were apprenticed, indentured, enslaved, or, well, actually, let me stop that, because convicts did have a slightly different kind of labeling in the records. Either way, getting exact or specific is nigh impossible, not to mention a fire that destroyed almost all of Virginia's earliest colonial documents. It's no wonder, then, that so many wish they were back in England with a missing limb, as that would have kept them from transport and allowed them to gain charity without having to be sold into this, or in the future, what would become the workhouse. This is what happened before the workhouse. Children of parents who were physically disabled were also allowed to receive charity and stay at home to care for work for their parents. So I think if I were a parent, and in this desperate of a situation, where it was send my child to Virginia or cut off my arm, your bitch is going to cut off her arm. But to be fair, they also didn't have a clue. This early, there was still a lot of propaganda going on. Anyways, before I start getting too rambly, after reading Richard's letters, it's easy to see why so many attempted to escape such bondage, but the punishments for trying to escape could be brutal and always included some more time added to your service. And I would honestly argue that Richard actually had was an escaped quote unquote servant because he had gone to Mr. Oh my God, let me say his name wrong. Uh, Goodman Jackson. Mr. Goodman Jackson was kind of, taking care of him a little bit and and that's important it probably helped him survive a lot longer like I said all of these hard harsh conditions was covered up in the concept of quote-unquote land of opportunity guaranteeing more people would sign children up to serve all of this is stuff we will be coming back to again and again because it's an important part of why some of these songs survived way up in the hills of places like West Virginia and North Carolina. You escaped up to, into the hills where nobody could find you, insulating yourself from the outside. So the culture you brought with you in the 17th or 18th century kind of stayed the same. 
all of this brings me to today's ballad, one that I had to do, had in my spreadsheet, but wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. I knew it was important in terms of talking about conflict tr transportation, etc., but I didn't, but I think it'll do well here. It dates from the same time frame that so many were shipped to the colonies as either so-called apprentices or as convict labor. It's the song of a man proud to be a vagrant who points out the evils of others not considered vagrants while emphasizing his own goodness. In some aspects, it is definitely some satire. So to close off today, let's look at A Light Heart's a Jewel or The Honest Good Blade Who a Free Heart Doth Carry and Cares for Nothing But to Have uh, Have's Own Vagary to the tune of Jack Pudding's Vagary. All you that merry lives do lead, although your means be little, that seldom are foreseen and bred, or take much thought for vittle, attend while I'll exemplify the mind that I do carry. I take delight both morn and night to have mine own vagary. Though fortune have not lent me wealth, as she hath done to many, yet while I've liberty and health, I'll be as blithe as any. I'll bear an honest, upright heart, there's none shall prove contrary. Yet now and then abroad I'll start, and have mine own vagary. No base profession will I choose, thereby to get my living. No Kent Street monding will I use, my mind's more bent to giving. I will not say I'm this and that, will bugbear boast to scare ye. Let coxcombs pray they know not what, I'll have mine own vagary. I'm no Gravesend trailer, no teller of strange stories, no forger of coronados, nor a man that evermore is extolling of his own deserts. And with proud words will dare ye to let such as these are acts their parts. I'll have mine own vagary. I'm no haunter of the plays, nor pick poor people's purses, nor one that every word he says doth coin new oaths and curses. I do run on tapster scores to pay them, I am weary. Let others spend their means on whores, I love mine own vagary. I'm no blade nor roaring boy, a boarding in the city. No whisk, no lift, no nor decoy, no, nor one that asks for pity. My education's not the best, yet such a heart I carry, that what my humor can digest, it fits not my vagary. No city shuffler, scarce of age, to have what fate hath left me. No hair-brained ass that's full of rage, reason, reason hath not bereft me. No great bum that may fright my fearful adversary, not but one that loves and takes delight to have mine own vagary. No you, sir, that hoards up trash, nor yet a noted spender. No borrowing shark that never pays, but to a friend a lender. No petty fog, nor common bale, for no such fellows care I. An honest sort I'll never fail to have mine own vagary. No bully-nully rook am I that sweareth all by damn me. By such I'll not or reached be, in this there's none can blame me. No swaggering pimp that champion is to dole to Kate's and Sari. I have such slavish offices, those fit not my vagary. There's painful swains on their green do daily take their pleasure. The pleasantest life that can be seen, they're not so stored with treasure. When husbandmen and shepherd swains with lasses of the dairy do sportingly trip o'er the plains, <laughs> that fits my vagary. I care not to wear gallant rags and owe the tailor for them. I care not for vaunting brags I ever did abhor them. 
What to the world I seem to be, no man shall prove contrary. My suit shall suit to my degree. Oh, that fits my vagary. I care not for those scarecrow blades whose valor lies in speeches that in discourse of manhood wades oft times above their reaches. If I not a mind to fight, I'll urge no adversary when word and deed both jump aright. Oh, but that fits my vagary. I care not for the broker's book. My name's not there enrolled. I nothing owe, therefore I look by none to be controlled. I do not fear the sergeant's mace. Walk by the counter, dare I, and look a bailiff in my, the face. So oh, this is my vagary. I care not much in company to spend what, what is allotted. I'll drink, but for sufficiency, I'll never be besotted. When I do feel my spirit stole, a cup of old canary will fill my heart with courage full, and this is my vagary. I care not for sad malcontent that is the bane of nature. I love good, honest merriment, and I'll despise no creature that's for my use and sustenance, and still I will be weary, lest I exceed in my expense. That fits not my vagary. Still will I have an honest care that none lies wronged by me. I'll not build castles in the air. Whoever lists to try me shall find that in all that's promised here, not any word contrary, I envious censure do not fear. I'll have my own vagary. So, I love and like how much he's making it clear. He is not a burden on anyone. Comparing to so many who would be considered criminal, and speaking to those roaring boys, next week we'll look at one of these fuckboys who comes home with bastards in tow and one of the ballads that actually inspired this podcast because it actually was really funny and includes some of the catchphrases I've worked on in my own vocabulary. Also, fart jokes. So until next time, say saucy.